Welcome to everyone who's joining us on the Local Churchology podcast for today's conversation with Dr. Lee Beach. My name is Tyler Tavares. I'm an associate pastor at Coburg Alliance Church in Coburg, Ontario. I am co-hosting today with Daryl Buckle. He is the lead pastor at Coburg Alliance, and we are beyond thrilled for today's conversation, which is all about gender roles and leadership in the Old Testament and pastoral and cultural considerations when navigating conversations on gender roles. Dr. Lee Beach is an associate professor of Christian ministry, Garbutt F. Smith Chair of Ministry Formation and the Director of Ministry Formation at McMaster Divinity College in Hamilton, Ontario. He's the author of The Church in Exile, Living in Hope After Christendom, and he co-authored the book, The Whole Gospel for the Whole World, Experiencing the Fourfold Gospel Today, along with Franklin Piles. He's also, and this is important, he is the former lead pastor at Coburg Alliance Church. So listen, Lee, it is great to have you with us today. Thanks so much for giving us your time. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you and always glad to connect with uh, Coburg Alliance, even if it's uh, uh, virtually. Uh, that church is a great church. It has such a significant place in, in my and my family's heart. Uh, we love that church. Yeah. And Lee, how long were you at Coburg Alliance? Well, pretty much yes. 10 years uh, I, 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 pastored, uh, I pastored there. And then we lived in Coburg for a little bit longer after that, actually. So we, we loved Coburg and um, <clears throat> life has taken us on from there, but uh, it's, it was a great, great place to be for us. Yeah. Well, very nice. Well, I mean, you know, Coburg is sort of known as a bit of a beach town. It's kind of a vacation <laughs> spot for, for some people. And it's some days I do feel like I'm kind of living in a little bit of a, oh, of a vacation. Yeah. If yeah. you had to go anywhere, Lee, if you had to go anywhere on vacation right now, where would you go? That's a tough one, you know, because uh, we still, uh, I, I guess in, in some ways, I, I, we have, my wife and I have aspirations to, to go and uh, do a little vacation in Europe a little bit more. We haven't really ever done that. We'd love to do that. But yes. if I was thinking about places that I've been, I love the West Coast. Uh, my parents uh, retired and lived out in Victoria for years, and uh, we were out there last summer. Actually, uh, I love I love going to the West Coast, and and I I love Victoria and the island, and uh, that's a great place to go and, and and have a vacation. Yes, very nice. What about you, Daryl? Where would you go right now? Yeah, well, I, I know the answer my wife would tell me to give, and that's back to uh, the UK, you know, God's country, the Queen's country. Yes. Uh, she, we are we are lovers of all things England and Europe and all that kind of stuff, too. Um, been a few times, not near enough. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's high on the list. Yes. Well, I have yet to go. I agree with you. I haven't really been to Europe, so I'm sort of dying to get myself out that way. If I had to choose one place, though, my wife is from, sort of grew up in Costa Rica, and we went four oh. years ago, and uh, I can't stop thinking about Costa Rica. I would love to. Oh, that's back. awesome. The food is great. The jungle's great. Probably be Costa Rica for me. Anyway, uh, listen, let's, let's dig in. Uh, and I want to dig in first off by asking you, Lee, about your personal and your professional experience when it comes to conversations around gender in the church. I mean, you were... You were a pastor at Coburg Alliance, certainly during a season when Coburg Alliance was navigating this conversation, you know, years back. And 
And so I'm just curious if you can tell us a bit about that journey for you, both personally and then professionally. Yeah. Um, I, I got to focus. You guys got me thinking about vacation now. And I guess I got to focus on the reality of uh, where we're here and now. So yeah, it was, um, for sure. There was a bit of a journey because, um, um, I would, uh, I, I was, when I, I became a, a Christian when I was 18 and, and I was nurtured in a, in a, in a really, uh, good, uh, at that time growing vibrant Alliance church in Edmonton, which is where I grew up. And I uh, went to Canadian Bible College and did my undergrad there and uh, went in, into ministry, uh, moved out to Ontario when I started in, as, as a youth pastor in Peterborough. And um, uh, all of those congregations and the prevailing uh, ideology of the day was very much a complementary, what we would now call a complementarian view. And so I, I imbibed that and, and, and took that to be... Um, the, the right way to understand things. And so early in my Christian life and even early in my pastoral career, I was uh, very much uh, in a complementarian uh, uh, belief system. And my senior, my first senior pastor was really strong on it actually. So it was a, it was a deal. It was an issue for him um, and, and, and which was fine. And, but he obviously reiterated to me that this is an important thing to, to believe in. And so um but, you know, increasingly the truth was that uh, in my own heart and life, I, I struggled, I, I kind of struggled with it because I see women, saw women as being competent, equal, um, uh, able in every single way. And so while I know I had this theological view that, that was, I, I believe was, was rooted in scripture, um, my life experience was really antithetical to what my theology was. And this became an increasing tension for me. And mm -hmm. so it also, and it, and it was a debate going on in the Alliance and denominationally, we were working through this as a denomination. So I was sort of, in some ways, in a good way, forced to have to think about, well, what do I think? What am I going to vote at assembly and all of that kind of stuff? And so, and even for my church, you know, what is, what's right for our church? So as I began to really work through it and, and got serious about studying the issue, I really, and this is kind of making a long story short, um, I really came to a place where I realized, as far as I could tell, there was really only one passage in scripture that maybe, uh, prohibited women from being in full leadership in the church. That's the first Timothy two passage. And as I studied that more closely, I became convinced that it had, and again, I'm sure you've had others kind of do the exegetical work on that, uh, through this series. So I won't get into the, the exegetical details, uh, the interpretive details, but, uh, as, as I began to work through it, I became comfortable with the fact that um, you know, while I understood it's what it said in its original context that, uh, I no longer believed that it was a binding sort of thing that had, um, ongoing implications. And once I got over that, um, I was glad to embrace an egalitarian view, um, because, uh, I didn't really see anything in scripture anymore that prohibited that. And certainly my life experience was that, um, uh, 
uh, women fun could function and were quite able to function. This sounds condescending. I hope it is. I don't mean it that way. But women were more than fully equal and capable along with men to serve. And in fact, we were cutting ourselves off at the knees by not releasing them to do so. So that became my journey uh, into embracing an egalitarian view in a nutshell. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and thanks for sharing you know, a lot of that, because I wonder if, you know, a handful of our viewers are, are kind of in the same boat where they see some things around them, but, you know, theology might be telling them one thing or another. And so maybe they have sort of that same experience. And so if that is you, or if you're curious and you're watching or you're listening and you want a little bit more information on some of those exegetical details, then we do encourage you to check out, we have an interview with Lynn Kohick, where she unpacks First Timothy 2 and 3 in Ephesians 5. And then you can also see an interview that if it's not available right now, it will be shortly with Cynthia Long Westfall. She'll unpack kind of some of those other uh, tricky, what we call tricky passages maybe in scripture. Well, let's, um, let's ask something that uh, I think is a key question, Lee, and we've explored it a little bit on this podcast before. Um, Beth Felker Jones touched on this just briefly uh, but it bears, I think, repeated exploration. It's whether or not the emergence of this egalitarian outcome to reading scripture is culturally conditioned. Some would say it's just the church abandoning its biblical roots, absorbing pressure from cultural forces. So how would you approach an analysis like that? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's an important question. It always is. Um, it's, 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 it's a, the reality of it is, is that, you know, that's a, that's a, Good question because it's a question about um, um, what we call contextualization and um, what how do we embody and faithfully live out the message of scripture the gospel uh, within various cultural contexts and you know that's been one of the challenges but also one of the geniuses of the church for two thousand years is that the church uh, has always beginning in the first century we we don't have to look further than the book of Acts. To begin how to see that this is happening in the in the very first years and decades of the church that the church has and does figure out what does it mean for us to embody this message in a particular context so when we talk about trying to adapt the message to to culture to specific uh cultural uh uh, uh iterations um what that's what the church has done and has been doing for 2000 years, particularly, I mean, every, every, but particularly the Protestant church um, has been, uh, you know, works hard at that, has been good at it, and evangelicals maybe even more so. Um, that's been one of the great, uh, I would say, again, geniuses that uh, has been part of the movement of, 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 of vibrant Christianity. And so I think that we always have to be doing that. And so for me, the idea is one of the things, and again, this is a large topic, more than we can probably deal with here in, in, in these moments. But again, going back to my own conviction that there's no prohibition in scripture uh, that, that, that's clearly transcultural, that clearly is intended to be something for all time, um, then I think it's about us saying, okay, how does how do we live this message out in our particular context? And in a context that's clearly a cultural context, I mean, it's clearly a gap, well, we'll call it egalitarian, but uh, that um, then it would seem to me that it's inappropriate to not embody the, me that, the message of the gospel in a way that fits within 
what is what is the, the, the way people think within culture. The church does that all the time. A couple of quick examples. One would be the 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 issue of circumcision as we find it in the old in the New Testament rather and again to the book of Acts uh, where the big debate in the church is should male Gentile converts be circumcised and this is a huge issue for us we go well what is you know that's not we don't it's not a thing we think about but uh, mm-hmm. it, it was in the first century because this is biblical stuff this is covenant. This is the idea that circumcision is the sign that you are in real right relationship. You're in covenant with God. It's biblical. It's scriptural. It was, it was, it's Old Testament, but that's what they had in the first century. It's their Bible. And of course, there's this great debate. Some are insistent that the Gentiles be circumcised. Uh, others, uh, particularly some of the key leaders we read about in scripture, like Paul and Barnabas and Peter, uh, recognize that, um, God is doing something with the Gentiles, and maybe it's not in our best interest as a missional church to force them to be circumcised. And of course, in Acts 15, we have the Council of Jerusalem where this kind of debate comes to a head. It doesn't end there necessarily, but it comes to a particular head. They make a decision, and the decision is that, no, the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised, which is a radical shift. Um, but it's a contextual shift. It's a shift that works for the advance of the gospel within that cultural context. And that's what the first church did. They made a, a radical shift in terms of ideas about how, how you relate to God, what it means to be in covenant relationship with God, how you uh, enact that in, in your physical being, in your life as a church, as a, you know, as a, as the people of God. And um, so they make this radical uh, decision um, that uh, that's, that's very much shaped by the cultural place in which they find themselves and what God is doing in that cultural shape. And then a more contemporary example, I would say, and, and is that sometimes the culture helps us to read scripture properly. Sometimes the culture that we live in actually helps us to take a second look at the Bible and helps us to say, you know, the way we've interpreted this for a long time may not be the only way to think about it. In fact, there may be more to it than that. And in fact, maybe some of the ways we've interpreted it is, isn't even really the, the best way or the right way to interpret it. And so like I would say as an example of that in today, it, it is um, uh, we have a growing movement within the church today is the movement of what we call creation care. And it's basically this idea that we need to care about the environment. We need to care about caring for our planet. And, you know, and now the reason the church has become all excited about creation care isn't because um, we've all started studying our Bibles more closely and we came up with this idea all of a sudden. We all know that Far before that, and I know there's been Christians who have cared about the environment and been doing environmental work for years, but let me tell you something, 30 years ago, the people who were writing about that and speaking about it, they were on the fringe. They were out on the outer layer of the radar when it came to mainstream evangelicalism. And we weren't even sure if they were actually, you know, really in the group, the club, to be honest. So, you know, that's how it was 30 years ago. It was. But now it's very, it's a big thing. And I know there's debate around it and people, not everyone thinks it's good or whatever, but, but let me tell you something. There's huge amounts of, of conferences, literature, 
uh, work that's being done on creation care from a Christian perspective. Wonderful stuff. My students at my school, they care deeply about environmental issues and the care of God's creation. But we didn't come up with this. What helped the church become awake to this issue was that the culture got there first. People started talking about climate change and the need to care for the environment, and it became a cultural issue way before it became a significant issue in the church. Do you think that Genesis 1 and 2 have anything to say about creation, about who we, how we should steward this world, what we're supposed, the responsibility that we have to care for creation? Do you think it says, maybe we got something, maybe... As Christians, we actually have something to say about that and some ideas that are given to us from Scripture, but they were not highlighted. In fact, in many ways, they were largely ignored until recently, until the culture helped us read our Bible again and awakened us to all that we have to contribute to that conversation. So you see, culture can help us. Sometimes culture makes us go, ooh, we believe this way for all this time and we thought it's a... It's a done deal. There's no more need to discuss it. But then all of a sudden we go, well, let's wait for a minute. So maybe the fact that women um, have taken it, you know, have become now are rightly taken a place in culture. And I know there's still work to be done there too. But as there, you know, the glass ceiling crumbles and those kinds of things are happening, maybe that's helping the church to read the Bible again in a fresh way that's actually right. And um, so cultural conditioning. Um, you, we always have to be careful with that. I understand that. But cultural conditioning is ne necessary. The church needs to be thinking deeply about how the gospel intersects with culture and what, how can we put down as many barriers as possible from stopping people to come to Christ. And then we also need to understand actually sometimes culture actually helps us. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. Yeah, Lee, that's a big stretch for anybody who was raised in that evangelical dispensational kind of framework, right? Which is, you know, 2000 years ago, post apostles, uh, that's it. God sort of tied up the book and we started selling it in leather print with our name engraved in gold on the bottom. Um, that was the last kind of, you know, thinking we had to do. We could just read plainly what was said and it applies, like you said, transculturally, whatever. Um, it is a stretch for some who were raised in that environment. Yeah. For sure. I acknowledge that. And I, I don't want to diminish that. Or, But it's it's important to understand that um, 2,000 years of church history has been all about the church not actually believing that, not living that way, um, actually figuring out how does how do we re under, how do we understand this word, God's word in this place? And that's that's the history of, of, of Christianity, um, uh, part of the history of Christianity. And I do understand what you're saying, Daryl, for sure. But, um, um, you know, we're often guided, I think, by fear and, and fear that if we change somehow, God will be mad at us. Um, his curse will be upon us um, or something like that, or that we'll be unjudged, unfaithful. And again, I'm not being trying to belittle those things. We, you know, we should have a healthy fear of all of those of all of those things. But sometimes that fear can paralyze us, and that inhibits us from reading Scripture properly. That inhibits us from being open to what God is doing and to possibly embodying the message more appropriately, more fully. 
and we can't be paralyzed by that fear. We 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 need to we need to move past that uh, in our lives without being cavalier, you know. And and I know there's a tension in that, and that's good. We live in that tension, but um, um, we can't be bound by by fear of change or fear of doing something new, even if it seems to you know even make us change our the theological viewpoint or our interpretation of a particular passage. I hope it's okay for me and to say know, that. Yeah, that's great. Well, Lee, what's, what's interesting is that there's a, there's a great segue into the Old Testament and sort of a lot of what you've just said. So you've written specifically on, you know, the church in exile. And one of the characters that you draw, one of the narratives you draw out is from Esther. And so I know you're going to dig into, you know, Esther as, you know, a key sort of a key figure in the Old Testament as a, as a woman who sort of assumes this leadership role in some major ways in the life of Israel. And so let's, let's go ahead and dig in a little bit. Let's dig into the Old Testament because I know some of our listeners are going to be curious about what does the Old Testament have to say? What's the trajectory from Old Testament to New Testament? So, so does the Old Testament actually have anything to say? about women in leadership or more broadly gender in relation to leadership? And, and if so, where can we find it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important to acknowledge that, um, you know, in the old Testament, clearly um, male leadership is, is the norm. And, um, and the old Testament is, 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 is patriarchal. It, because that's the that's the worldwide context in which it 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 comes out of, and I, I think I don't think we do ourselves any favor by trying to sugarcoat that or not acknowledge that it 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 was a product of its culture, just like we've been talking about, and um um and so you know the when we see women in leadership in the Old Testament, they're they're not there's not a huge amount, there's not a ton there. But there are some important things, and I just I'm going to just highlight a few things uh, again without hopefully belaboring them, um, but but then also say why they're important, why why their their place in the Old Testament is very important. You know, we have a couple real great examples of of women who who are who are put in the 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 the, the Hebrew Bible, so they're canonized, they're they're included in the Hebrew Bible. Their stories are included because for whatever reason, those who put the who, who were putting together the scriptures of, of Israel saw these as key stories for uh, the people to remember as formative in God's working on their behalf. And one is Esther, as you as you said, Tyler. And Esther is a great story, but she she's not really appointed to official leadership, but she works uh, on behalf of her people Israel in order to save them from genocide. And she successfully is able to uh, uh, repeal an edict, a Persian edict that was supposed to was designed to exterminate uh, the, the 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 Hebrew people. And she uh, is used by God to be the one, the catalyst who enables that edict to be turned aside. And then Ruth, who is a, again a simple little story of of someone who's not given an official leadership position, but she functions in this way that she. Um, uh, uh, demonstrates uh, a fidelity to uh, the to the to Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, uh, in such a way that uh, she becomes a part of the lineage of King David, and then ultimately, as Matthew's Gospel tells us, the lineage of the Messiah. And her story is captured and and included in Hebrew Scripture because the, I think the people who 
collated Hebrew scripture, uh, realized this story is important. This woman played a key role in the perpetuation of, of our people and, and our nation. And so these women are captured as key figures. Um, uh, Bill Webb, who's written and wrote a book called um, uh, um, Women, Slaves, and Homosexuals, which is basically a book about how to interpret some of these issues that we, we wrestle with sometimes. He talks about uh, um, there being, um, in, in interpreting the Bible, we have to look sometimes for what he calls seed ideas. Uh, this idea that maybe they're not predominant ideas. They're not like big time teachings in scripture, but, but we see seeds of things uh, being spread in scripture that, that, that we then need to, to, we need to cultivate and see how does that, how does that feed into the, the larger narrative? And he would probably say Esther and Ruth are sort of seed ideas that, that demonstrate this idea that women played a key role or played a role in the health and life of the nation of Israel, even if they were never necessarily official leaders. But in the Old Testament, we also have a couple great stories of women who were official leaders. Uh, maybe the most prominent one is Deborah uh, in Judges chapter four and five. And Deborah plays multiple roles. She is a judge, an elder, uh, tells us that Israel comes to her to make judgments on their cases and on their, their conundrums and the things they need help from, from the judges for. Uh, Deborah is clearly established as a judge and there's no uh, caveat to that. There's no kind of explanation like, well, there were no guys available, so she had to do it. It's just, she's, she's the judge and she functions as the judge over Israel. Then she's also a prophetess. So she uh, speaks God's word uh, to Israel. And she's uh, anointed by God to, 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 to function as a prophet within the nation. And then later on, even in the second half of her story, she becomes a military leader. She, she marshals and leads the Israelite army in a key battle. So she plays three roles, uh, key leadership roles, usually men's roles, that, uh, that she functions in. And again, this is put to us. As a, in a very matter matter of fact way. I mean, it's it's a great story, and there's lots in there. But uh, Deborah functions in these in all of these roles that were uh, important, obviously key functions uh, within the nation of Israel. And then in Second uh, Kings and Second Chronicles, we meet uh, Huldah. Uh, Huldah is a prophetess, uh, and she she comes in at this really key time. Uh, so they find in the temple uh, King Josiah's people find the book of the law. It's been long, long missing. And then all of a sudden they find it in the temple, if you read the story. And they come to Josiah and he's like, oh yeah, this is important. Like, what are we going to do with this? What are we supposed to do? With and so they say, go see the prophet, prophetess, and she'll tell us. So they go to Hulda and Hulda gives, tells them what exactly they need to do in terms of, of re-engaging with, with the law. And she's given that responsibility at a key time in Israel. She's the prophetess who's consulted uh, about what to do with, the, with this new discovery of the old book of the law. And, and so she functions this way. Again, there's no caveat put to it. There's no, uh, it's just a matter of course that she's the prophetess who's consulted at this crucial moment. And so again, um, while these are not numerous examples, they are key examples. They're examples that are in the Old Testament that I think function as, as Webb talks about as these seed ideas that indicate to us that while this is normal, there's other stuff going on that are, that's equally as legitimate, equally as 
equally as, as fine, uh, even though it may not be the main narrative, it's a, it's a sub-narrative that we can find that can be cultivated and can flourish just as, as good seeds do. And then in the book of Joel, uh, you know, there's that great vision Joel offers, uh, you know, there's condemnation to Israel, but then there's the hope of a better future that God's going to bless them and lead them into a better day. And I'm just going to read a couple verses from Joel because, uh, you know, as Joel's offering a, a better future to Israel, he says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days, I'll pour out my spirit. So Joel's vision as he prophesies on behalf of the Lord of the better future for Israel includes um, men and women functioning together uh, in ministry as prophets, uh, the spirit being poured out equally on male and female. And uh, Joel's, Joel's future vision seems to offer this idea that in God's uh, promised future for Israel, there's an equality that's an intrinsic part of that. And so I think that this is a huge, again, we realize that these are not the, the made the overarching narrative of the Old Testament, but within the Old Testament, there's clear um, um, uh, uh, roles that women are undertaking as leaders um, within the nation. And, and Joel would suggest that, you know, those seed ideas actually are coming to fruition at some point, which we're starting to see in the New Testament. Right. And of course, P Peter refers to that uh, on Pentecost. Yeah, very important, Tyler. You're right. So at Pentecost, uh, when they're trying to figure out what's going on here, as the Holy, as the Spirit is coming on the church, Peter's going, oh, this is what Joel meant when he said, this is, this is, this is the future. So it, it does carry forward, clearly carries forward into the, into the New Testament um, and, and into the thinking of the early church. Yeah, Lee, so like Christians often wrestle with what do I do with the stories of the Old Testament? How does their example apply to us in the New Covenant? Can you, can you help us out at all with that? Well, yeah, again, that's an um, important question, you know, complex in many ways. But I mean, I think, I think that when we think of the larger narrative uh, of, of Scripture, that's what we focus on with the Old Testament. How is God at work? What is the Old Testament? You know, the Old Testament really... Is, is just the unfolding story of God's work of redemption in history, particularly in a certain people. And so we need to read our Old Testament in a way that says, what does it tell us about the way God works? And what does it tell us about how God's uh, bringing redemption, bringing restoration to the world? And so when we see, again, maybe just one or few stories of how he's using women, we should say, well, that should tell us something about what God, what God's interested in doing. So that's a short answer to a complex question, but I think we can read the Old Testament that way in, in the big picture of it. Um, and and, and the, the key for us as we approach the Old Testament is, you know, what's this unfolding story and what is it teaching us about who this God is and how he works in the world? Um, and even in the small stories or in the smaller narratives, we need to give those significance in terms of our theologizing. Yeah, and I find Hulda's story so helpful, too, because of where it's placed, right? Just, you know, pre-exile, pre uh, in a time of spiritual renewal, like you said, they found the, the you know, the whatever, the Torah again, and 
and uh, and so when they were looking for spiritual leadership, they went to Hulda. Um, you know, with Deborah, you can say, oh, well, she was a judge or sort of a societal leadership. Maybe she was a remarkable gal. That's fine. It wasn't just that. She was prophetic, like you said, also a military leader. And But with Hulda, it's that, that there was this unique time in the history of God's people when uh, in in this season, they, they looked to this remarkable woman and or uh, whatever, women prophet, yeah. Hulda and perhaps others, women prophetesses. So yeah. Uh, we see spiritual leadership in the Old Testament amongst women, but uh, priests seem to be all male. Does that somehow disqualify women as pastors in the New Testament? Like, how do we, what's the contextual analog for us, if there is one? Yeah, I mean, so I don't think, like, I think, obviously, the priest, the priestly order and function uh, was um, reflective of what was culturally the way the way it worked that um you know the men were the 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 priestly line of israel uh was men that was given and um i i i you know there, there's not a lot of rationale given to that in the old testament but it was the way it was and it was the it was the reality of of life in that day and that's that's how i see it um we don't have priests really nothing we do in the church today has any resemblance really whatsoever to the way that the Levites function in Israel. Um, what you do, what you guys do as a pastor, bears z- almost, well, I won't say zero, but it bears almost no resemblance to what the Levites Levites did for, for Israel. I mean, in a sense, sort of the bigger picture, like, you know, you're there to represent God, to, to do God, to serve God and people and all of that, sure. But uh, in terms of the actual function, the, the, the Levitical priesthood, has almost nothing to say to us as 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 Christians. Um, um, so I don't see it as being any pattern for ministry in contemporary in the contemporary world. Yeah, so certainly, I mean, don't I don't want to, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not just throwing it out and saying, but it, it's a completely different function. It's just not the same as as the world we live in. Yes, some of our Catholic friends seem to give more credence in their, uh, you know, the the papacy being the representation of Christ. Uh, Jesus was a man, Pope has to be a man, priests have to be male, that kind of thing. So you hear some people reaching for that. That's not really a, a Protestant reformational kind of idea, though, right? With the priesthood of all believers. And- yeah, I mean, you make a good point. I mean, in, in Catholic and Orthodox tradition, certainly the clergy would play a slightly different, well, a, a different role or be perceived differently uh, to some degree than, um, than in Protestantism. But even there, what they do and how they function is quite different from, from what the what Levites did for Israel. I mean, it, I get that there are similarities and stuff, but um, if we're, if we're going to go there, then, then you got to start going, okay, so then you would expect your pastor to do this and that and the other things that would have no cultural relevance whatsoever in 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 a, in a Christian church. So either you know you can't just kind of pick and just well they're men so we pastors today need to be men. Well, there are a lot of other things that were true about the Levites. Do all of those need to apply now to us today? Well, we go no, that's crazy. It's so you can't have one and then exclude. If you want the Levites, you got to take the Levites, or else you know. It, you have to acknowledge it was it was a 
instituted, it was an instituted role that had its time in the sacrificial system, but it's, it's not what we do anymore. Uh, over many years, as I've interacted with people on this issue, we often run up against those ideas of how, you know, when do you know when something is a cultural idea versus a religious expectation? Like that famous Jewish prayer, thank God I'm not a whatever, a woman or a dog or whatever. Like it's, it's pretty pejoratively patriarchal oh, wow. um, to say the least. And and there's some who would say, you know, this was their mindset. This was their culture. You know, not if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But but almost to say that this to reinforce that's the sense of patriarchy they had there to reinforce the idea that we should somehow there. Is there anything, Lee, that you can point to in the Old Testament itself that might lend towards uh, restrictions on women in a New Testament, New Covenant context? Yeah, so uh, very simply, my answer is no. Um, there, there's clearly, as I already said, I, I fully understand that the Old Testament is all about male leadership, that 98, I don't know, 95% of what you find in terms of leadership in the old testament is men that that there's a, a high that there's even some hierarchy maybe in households and in societies that the old testament talks about um but but what i would argue is that there's no passage in the old testament that says women can't be elders in your church there's no passage in the Old Testament that explicitly says women can't, I, you know, women can't do certain things. And, and so, you know, what I'm getting at is this idea that, so no, there's not. So do we need to deal with, okay, how do we interpret the Old Testament and understand the Old Testament? Of course, that's ongoing. But we need to be careful that when we deal with scripture of putting on scripture stuff that scripture never says. And, 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 and so, you know, without, again, this is the lengthy discussion about, well, how do you understand the old Testament and the new Testament? And then in our context is a big discussion, but we need to be careful that we don't take things from ways that we understand the world in our day and then impose them back into the old Testament or vice versa. Um, and we also need to recognize that the, the culture, the day in which the Old Testament was written, isn't like some glorious day that's frozen in time. And this is the culture that really, this is the way it should always be in the world. The way it was, you know, 3,000 years ago, 4,000, that's the culture that God really wants. There's no, re, there's no evidence of that. That's nonsense. So things move on, culture changes, culture evolves. Yes, we take the Old Testament seriously in understanding how, what, how it should function in our day. But if you ask me the question, can I read a passage in the Old Testament that clearly says women can't be elders in the, in the 21st century church? There's no passage like that. There's nothing in the Old Testament that would warrant that. Um. So, Lee, what you were saying about, um, you know, every culture, every context needs to relearn how to re-read the scripture, reapply the scripture. So I confess, like I'm, I'm, uh, you know, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, you know, kind of. And so I like I'm not from a tribal culture, 
I'm not from a culture where uh, there was a social fabric that revered elders even. And so some of these things, when you say Deborah was an elder, she was, she would have been revered, not just because of her age and experience. And some cultures do this better than mine, uh, but that in those cultures and tribal cultures, et cetera, that really was a, a part of their, their societal function, right? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And so when Paul's talking to Timothy about setting up elders, different things like that, it, it's a it's a little bit of more seamless value. It wouldn't have been a foreign notion, the idea of saying you have to identify who are those wise uh, folks who we would count on for leadership. Yeah, yeah it was it was much more intrinsic um, to the to 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 the to the to the to those days. Absolutely. That would be my understanding. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's be I, I and I only pull that out because I think often when we read this from a you know not not tribal culture, not a culture that has valued elders, we really think of it as a job description. <laughs> we, we're we're going to post a position as a job. Here's the job description, and you know it's kind of we'll interview you a pass fail thing. It's it's uh you know we have a little bit of a different approach in, in that way yeah. to trying to figure out what was he getting at when he was giving guidance to how do you identify elders. Yeah. Do you have any do you have any input on that? What should we be looking for for elders? Oh well, yeah, that's a good. I mean, I think I do. I think you want to obviously we want to at least uh, uh, or we, we what you know the great teaching we have in Timothy and Titus are are certainly good starting points for us. Scripture is always the, the good starting point, but we also understand that that those lists are not exhaustive or. Um, you know, this is all, this is it, you know, don't, this is all you need to think of. Well, no. So, you know, there's the wisdom of, of, of thinking about um, other, other things that, 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 that probably are related, relate to those uh, lists, but uh, are, are more, um, you know, again, uh, expressions of what we would look to towards people. Like, I mean, it doesn't say uh, anything on those lists about, you know, being, uh, um, you know, uh, a, a, a worker for justice. I don't think that Paul was against that in any kind of way, but or, or someone who was, uh, um, you know, invested deeply in um, uh, in creation care. <laughs> you know, those are things we can see things that people do for the fruit of their lives, and 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 we just we do our own discernment. No different than they did, as you're saying, Daryl, in the the first century. Different maybe in that our culture thinks a little differently. But still, it's this idea of discerning who are the elders, who are the people who are examples to us, who are the people who somehow embody the Christian faith in a consistent and winsome way that, uh, that, that um, you know, qualify them to, to, to lead and to, to offer their gifts in a, in a specific way. So I don't know if that answers your question well or not, but, uh, um, you know, it, 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 it is that discerning of the people who we see who most, most effectively um, show embody a sincerity of faith that uh that others others could emulate if they should emulate uh as they as they seek to, to follow sorry if i don't know if that does that answer your question for sure it yeah is. for sure and i i think the other thing i wanted to just say was you know we, we so value your your time with us here today not just because of your scholarship and your position at mac but you've been a kind of a capital a alliance guy for a long time uh, you've also just been a pastor, a leader, a servant of the church, not just an academic. And so, 
it, you know, for those who might be watching or listening, maybe they're in pastoral leadership themselves. Maybe they're in Alliance churches, maybe not um, like we are. Uh, do you have any advice uh, on how to navigate some of these uh, complex issues uh, in the church pastorally in, in that in that way? Yeah, I mean, um, a, l- a little bit because um, um, and I and I think, you know, what you guys are doing is a, is a great is a great model of that but um one of the things i think is when we after you know i I guess in my own way i've kind of you know put my thoughts forward here today but um at the end of the day i think as a leader you always have to put care of the body um ahead of your own your own agenda and your own um desire for things um so i'd say you lead with that you know you lead with the idea because when we talk about cultural contextualization that's really important but every broader context has a smaller context has a smaller context and i like what you guys are i calling this uh local local the localology or what is what is it that you're the local churchology yeah, yeah. because every, you know that's important every i think all theology is local and and it's even you know as contextual as a congregation and so when you're leading a process of any sort where you know it's a, a volatile, potentially volatile, or, you know, volatile is maybe too, well, it can be volatile, but at least where you know it can be contentious, you always have to, I think, you want to come and as best as you can, um, be open-handed, um, willing to learn yourself, and if necessary, even to be willing to not get your way. And, um, and I think that's a really a, an important posture to approach to approach things with that doesn't mean that you can't lead in a specific way or share your views and teach your views, but with a with sort of a humbleness that isn't going to insist that the church do it the way you want to do it. So I think that's important. Then I think having a good process is is key. And you guys are in a process. I when I've led the church through this discussion, we had a, almost a year long process. Uh, that that we that we went through, just giving time, giving resources, uh, giving stuff for people to read, having some meetings that allowed people to hear different sides. Not that that's the only way to do it. I, there's lots of different ways to to do good process, but you got to have a process that allows people uh, the chance to imbibe what they need to learn and think about it and pray about it. And prayer is part of the process. Uh, how are you praying even publicly as a church to, to uh, make sure that you're inviting God into this, into this process in, in very obvious ways. So have a good process uh, to manage that process. Um, and then I think also though, there's a place for directive leadership. So as a leader, don't be scared to, to, to share your view. Um, to to um, be honest about your view, why you hold that view, uh, to teach that view from 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 scripture. I think most people want to know the, their leaders' views on things. Um, I, I I think that they they're interested that they and if as long as you do it in a humble and sort of very erratic, uh, open way, um, it's not trying to jam it down people's throat. They'll appreciate that. But lead, you know, lead your church. If you think God is calling you to be a to do this in your church or to change your practices in this way, you know, by, as a leader, uh, take that mantle that you have and, um, and, and, and don't, don't shy away from sharing your view, even though, you know, that might tick some people off and they won't like it. 
But uh, I say uh, take the, your leadership seriously and um, give give your view, um, and and but do it with gentleness and respect. And uh, and uh, but uh, don't be afraid to uh, offer your vision of what you think God is doing and what you're what He's calling your church to. Uh, I think that's always going to be healthy when it's done appropriately. So those are three things I'd say, Daryl. So good. So good. Thank you. Thank you, Lee, for joining us today, sharing your thoughts on the Old Testament, sharing your thoughts on um, what it means for us to think about a few of these women who've shown up in leadership roles or in key positions in the life of Israel in the Old Testament and some of these pastoral considerations. As we think about um, navigating all of this together, we appreciate your your guidance. We appreciate what you've shared with us today, your perspective on all of this. Uh, thanks for joining us on the Local Churchology podcast. Uh, if you would, and you're you know you're tuned in, you're watching, or you're listening, uh, please like or subscribe or do both and share it with other people so that they can uh, learn as well about the same things that we're learning as a church together. Lee, uh, as we finish up today, we just want to say one more thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank you for, for, the, the, for the invitation and for the, the great questions. Yeah, Lee, so if people want to find you or resources, how do they do that? Well, maybe the best, the easiest thing is go to the McMaster Divinity website. Um, it's uh, it's just um, um, I think mdc.ca or um, I think that's what it is. And then you can go on. The, there's a faculty thing, and you can find me on the faculty page. Super. Yeah. Thanks great. again, Lee. And if you're tuned in, please please do um, check out our next episode. We are going to have an episode with I think our next one we're recording just tomorrow. Uh, with Cynthia Long Westfall. So tune in for another episode soon. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time.